Well, good morning. It is a great joy to be with you again this morning. Pastor Chris asked me a few months ago <clears throat> if I would preach again, and I'm really, really grateful for that opportunity. I grew up here in Owasso. I went all the way through eighth grade in Owasso. My family has lived here my whole life, and so to me, Owasso still has this this, this is home mentality, and so I'm really grateful for this church, but I'm really grateful for you. Just as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, being that light, that hope in a community that needs it. Really not just the community, but this world in which we live in, and that really is desperately in need of the hope of Christ. Desperately in need of Christ that, that showcases his glory in all aspects of humanity, but yet here in, in the local body of Christ, Christians, we as individuals, get to radiate his glory. And we're, we're living in a world where depression and anxiety is the slope that is pulling people in quicker and quicker every day. And anxiety and depression have been on the rise in our culture for years. I mean, fear is this overwhelming thought that is crippling people faster and faster. And today, we even live in a time and, a, and place where knowledge and wealth is greater than it ever has been before where we have access to both, where we can contain information and, and get to it quickly. And yet, we look at children under the age of 12. Over 20% of children in the United States live on some form of antidepressant. Well over 30, closer to 40% of all teenagers in the United States live on some form of antidepressant. I remember as a kid, I didn't know anything about depression. I just remembered that rocks hurt when my brother threw them at me. That's the end of my knowledge as a kid. And so often we miss out on what God has because we're consumed with this worry and anxiety and depression and fear. They, they mainly come from this place of waiting for what is next. We're stuck in the waiting and, and we're wondering and worrying, waiting on what will happen, what will come of this, where will I be, who will I be, where will I be that person at, and we're, and we're fearful about everything that happens, and we're wondering what it'll be like when we get there. There's a great book by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote, many would know, the Chronicles of Narnia, but he also wrote so many other great Christian literatures for us to have, and one of those is the Screwtape Letters. Now, Screwtape is an older demon writing to his nephew, Wormwood. So if you have a child coming in the future, Wormwood is a great option to have. You'll be a one-of-a-kind. And so he's writing to Wormwood on how to tempt us, humans, how to really mess up Christians and how to, how to overwhelm them. And he has great insights for us to hold on to. And Screwtape says this to Wormwood, quote, It is far better to make them live in the future. Biological necessity makes all of their passions point in that direction already. So the thought about the future inflames hope and fear. Also, it's unknown to them, so that in making them think about it, we make them think about unrealities. Hence, nearly all vices, we would say sin, are rooted in the future. Gratitude looks to the past, love to the present, fear, greed, and ambition looks ahead. And so often we're there. I mean, we gorge ourselves on fear at the table of waiting. Wondering what will happen, asking how will this unfold, what's going to come of this, and, and we get more and more fearful. We're struggling through all that. Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist, but he was also a public, well-known atheist. And he was forced into a Nazi concentration camp in 1942 through 1945. And ironically, in this concentration camp, when meaning of life is supposed to be stripped away, he found meaning. 
he wrote a great book called Man's Search for Meaning. And he quote, he says this, if there's meaning in life at all, then there must be meaning in suffering. Suffering is an ineradicable part of life. And even as fate and death, and without suffering and death, human life cannot be complete. But how you handle suffering, how you handle the waiting, determines how you live for the now, right, in the moment, but also what your outlook on the future is. And Viktor Frankl also wrote this, writes this, and he talks about these prisoners in this concentration camp. And he says, the prisoner who had lost faith in the future gave up. Their future was doomed. Nobody hitting them, no threats had any effect. They simply gave up waiting. While waiting, we envision everything that the future may hold for us, but we're not really doing anything. We look at the past, it's frozen, it can't be changed. We look to the future, and it's, it's not real because it's not here. And so we're, we're kind of in this, this no man's land, just waiting for what would happen. And usually what comes out of our waiting is we look forward and we come out of it thinking despair. That's it. That's all I got. The future doesn't really look all that bright. We're asking a question, what, is it, what does the future hold for me? Am I just going to work some more? Then I'm just going to pass away? Am I going to pay taxes and die? Am I going to maybe just have these bills and maybe, maybe a little bit more comfort as I get older? Maybe a few little amenities that will make things better here and there. But it's all these little things that we're looking forward to and, and we don't really see anything besides despair. And so it becomes the real outlook. If life is just more comfortable life with incremental advancements, then despair is the reality in which we have to look for. Now listen, <clears throat> if you have never given your life to Christ, and I'm not, I'm not talking about just a name only where I claim to know Christ, but I still live this way. I'm talking about if you've never surrendered to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm telling you despair is the greatest outlook of life you have. Because the reality of what's next after life is a lot worse than just despair. I mean, it's overwhelming to really think through what suffering would look like. And this is where Viktor Frankl found the meaning, the point and purpose of life. And it is in that suffering that we can start to see this. And so, but if I've given my life to Christ, if I truly am a Christian, I live in a weird place. I live in the already but not yet place in this world. I am saved, but I'm not living in eternity. I'm redeemed, but I'm still struggling with everything that's going on. So I'm already saved, I'm already redeemed, but I'm not there in the completed form yet. So what do I do with the right now? And so often as Christians, we put our focus on the future. But my hope isn't in the future. My hope is not what will come next. My hope is not about the fantasies of this world. I have a purpose. And my purpose is an eternal one. My focus is on the eternal one. My focus is on Christ and Christ alone, not what's next. Because he holds what's next, and I just get a focus on him and him alone. So it's in this waiting. <clears throat> it's in this hoping. It's even in this suffering that as a Christ follower, we become unconquerable. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, no, in all these things, in all these things, these trials and tribulations and all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who saved us, who loves us and cares for us. 
Jesus Christ is our hope for those who have given their life to him. And it's not about the focus, about the future. It's about Jesus. It's about focusing on Christ. It's about knowing who he is and that he holds my eternity. Isaiah, where we find ourselves today, and you're reading through the Bible this past week, you've read through Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah is prophesying to the nation of Israel some 700 years before Jesus Christ steps on the scene. And he's, he's writing and he's prophesying to this nation who has, has been broken and divided, has been conquered, and now they are in exile in Babylon. And in the time we get to chapter 40, where we'll find ourselves today, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27, they had been in captivity for decades. And they're in their prison in Babylon. And they're overwhelmed, and they're looking outside their concentration camps. They're looking outside their barbed wire fence. And you know what they see? That the future looks just like the past, nothing but despair. Just surrounded by all this, this emptiness and hopelessness, and they're just waiting on God, and they can't hear him. They don't hear his voice. He's been, he's been quiet for a long time. And so when God's quiet, what's the first thing we think? He doesn't like me. He's abandoned me. I don't know why our minds race that way. I'll call my wife, and I know she should be home with the kids. We homeschool our children. I know she should be there. I know they should be new in school. And I call, and she doesn't answer, and I think, oh, great. Someone broke in and robbed and took everybody. I don't know why my mind goes to worst-case scenario, but it does. I mean, I have an older son who's now driving, and he doesn't answer his phone. I think, oh, the absolute worst has happened. And we still think that about God. I didn't hear from him. I didn't see. I didn't see the power. I didn't feel the power. And so they fill this place. And they're wondering that God's voice comes through the prophet Isaiah. And God's word is, is roaring into them. And he, they hear it. And he's, he's speaking to them like a mighty warrior. Listen to me. It is God's word that elevates you out of your despair. It's not a self-help or a promotion of me, myself, and I. It is God's word that removes all doubts and worries and fears. And this is the word that is spoken in Isaiah 40. It is his truth that comes to them. And so all the idols and all the false gods and all of our human fantasies are infinitely inferior to the great I am. They don't even hold water to how wonderful he is. And so what we do is we do not, as Christians, we do not look to the future. We look to the eternal, and the eternal is here with us. He's all around us. He holds us. He surrounds us. He is not, my, my world in which I live in is not a prison. I'm not in a concentration camp surrounded by barbed wire. I'm not in exile in Babylon. I am in the hands of the mighty creator, and he says, I need you here for this moment for an eternal purpose. How will you live and how will you obey? My focus is the eternal one, and he is coming. And that's what Isaiah prophesies. Would you stand as we read in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27 and following? Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up 
they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Nia. See, <clears throat> point number one is our suffering. We see this in verse 27. We're, we're going to suffer. Suffer is, is a part of life in everything that we do. And during this time, the Jewish exiles, they felt that abandonment from God. They couldn't hear his voice. They weren't seeing his power, so they felt hurt. They were fearful, and they were wondering, where is God? Have you ever been there? I mean, you might be there right now. Because this is the reality of life we face. Where's God when I need him? I read the Bible. I've been going to church. And it sure seems like God has a lot of things he's asking of me. And I just don't hear him right this moment. And so I'm wondering, is he there? And this is not a one-time feeling. This comes upon every one of us on a regular basis. It comes often. It comes on a lot of people. This same feeling that we felt that we feel as abandoned by God is the same feeling that Eve had in the garden with Satan. Satan is spewing lies into her life, telling her that God doesn't like her because he's withholding things from her. He's not even here right now, so he he doesn't even like you that much. He's abandoned you, and so you might as well just indulge in the next worldly adventure. It's the same feeling that we feel today. Him telling us lies over and over that we're alone, that we're abandoned. He tells us that God doesn't love us. He doesn't even like us. He doesn't even think we're good looking anymore. I remember in college, I'm playing college football, and and my coach is screaming at me, and he tells me I'm a horrible football player, I'm a horrible athlete, my dad hates me, and my mom thinks I'm ugly. And I was like, that's not true, I'm my mom's favorite. I know that. But these are the lies that Satan tells us. These are the things that he comes in our hearts, and we, and we don't hear God in that moment, and so we start to focus, like, all right, maybe he doesn't like me, you know, let me, start to, let me start to look at the future, let me move God out of the picture, let me see what I got next, I got a, I got a plan, I got to strategize, I mean, I got to think through this, and we start to focus on things that have no meaning, because they're not real. Listen to their words in verse 27. They say, my way is hidden from the Lord. That word way means my journey, my path. In in short, it means my life. My life is hidden from the Lord. It says my right is disregarded. That word right really carries with it my idea, my case. All the iniquities and all the the injuries that have been leveled against me, all the wrongs, so I'm never going to receive justice, I'm never going to be paid back, I'm never going to get out of this. So let me, let me reword it a little bit. Israel is saying this to God. God doesn't see me. God doesn't like me. He's disregarded all of me. Life is overwhelming, and he doesn't care. Now I want you to understand who is speaking those words. It's the nation of Israel. That is God's chosen people, all asking the question you and I ask every day, why? Why? Why am I going through this? Read the Psalms. Give them a perusing. You know what the number one question you're going to see over and over again? Why? King David, a man after God's own heart. God, why have you forsaken me? Why is my enemy prospering? 
Why am I abandoned? Why are my feet in this pit of despair? Why? Why? Why am I going through this? The disciples, these giants of our faith, who saw the risen Lord, they touched him. They were around him. And they were surrounded by the Y ecosystem. They were living in it. And they left the ministry. They threw in the towel. They quit. They said, I'm going back to business and going fishing. This is all to show you you're not alone in Christianity or history asking why. So quit believing the devil and and falling prey to his lies that you are some unique unicorn that's only questioned God. None of us, even the giants of the faith, have ever lived with unwavering faith. That's Jesus. That's the whole point and purpose of why Jesus came in the first place. Because you can't do it in your own strength. But you can submit to him by faith. That's the difference. And so Satan and the demons, they bring all these lies. It doesn't matter if I'm in exile or not. And so we, we get irrational in our fear. Fear makes wimps out of all of us. You can be the toughest man in the world. And whatever scares you, terrifies you. And it makes you irrational. It makes you fearful. And it makes you run in a million miles an hour in all the wrong directions. This is why Peter tells us, Peter, a giant, in 1 Peter 5.8, or yeah, 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded. Do not be drunk on fear. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Uh, Satan is, is just roaring lies to see you run. He doesn't care where you run as long as you're not standing firm in the faith of Jesus Christ. He doesn't care which way you run. Paul tells us in our fight against Satan in Ephesians chapter 6, take your stand against the devil. But he just wants to spew those lies so that we will just flee in every which way. But look at the name that is in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? Why Why did the prophet, through the voice of God, used two names to speak to the Jewish people. What imagery did these names conjure up in their minds as they were thinking through, oh, Jacob and Israel? If we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 32, Jacob is the patriarch uh, along the lineage of his father Abraham to the nation of Israel. But Jacob was a swindler. He 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 was slimy to be all nice about it on a Sunday morning. And he had swindled everybody. There's this night where they're, they're going to go see Esau. Remember, he ripped Esau off in a big way. And both Jacob and Esau, but Esau even more so, grew more populous in his heritage and his wealth and all that he had. And so they're about to collide and they're about to meet for the very first time in a long time. And the last words that Jacob heard from his brother, his brother Esau was, I'm going to kill him. And I know every brother, my brothers were in the first service. Every single brother has said that. I said that to mine many a times, but Esau meant his. And so Jacob is fearful. So he's afraid that if he gets attacked in one ambush, everybody gets wiped out. So he put troops over here, here, his family over here, and he went by himself in the dark. And he was hiding like a coward. And out of the darkness, this figure jumps out and wrestles with him. And this wrestling, this wrestling match is overwhelming and it's powerful. And in that, Jacob 
desperate for God to bless him. Doesn't let go until he does. In Genesis chapter 32, at the end of verse 28, it says, For you have striven with God and men and have prevailed. So Jacob was renamed Israel. And Israel just simply means a people who wrestle with God. God blesses everyone who is desperate enough to wrestle with him. Because he will not ever, never abandon you or leave you. And, and so it's in these moments that Satan lies to us. God doesn't look at you as a victim. He doesn't say, poor, pitiful you. If Christ is living inside of you, God looks down at you and says, you're more than conquerors. You have the power of Christ in you. And yet we live in fear. We live, we live in such overwhelming fear because we believe and we consume the lies of Satan. And we're struggling with that. We, we try to walk by faith and we stumble and we fall and we walk and we stumble and we fall and we walk and we stumble and we fall and we keep falling and we think, God's done with me. He doesn't like me because I keep messing up. Let me quote back from Screwtape Letters one more time. Screwtape says this about our truth, about our, our God, our Savior. It says, He, God, wants people, us, you and I, Christians, God wants them to learn how to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased. And even with their stumble, he is pleased. Have you ever stopped and thought that God's, God's pleased with your stumbling? You are with every one of your kids. You get them and they're little bitty critters and you hold them up and they take a step and they fall. Well, usually they don't take a step. They just, you let go and they just sit down in fear. And everyone celebrates like it's a national champion of some sort. Then they get up and you hold them and they, they kind of move and they wobble and they just look like a newborn baby giraffe and go bonk again. Then you grab them and finally, in that bravery, they, they take that first step and everybody celebrates. And that celebration causes fear, so they what? Fall. But you're so pleased. You're so overwhelmed because that child took that step. And your heavenly father is pleased when you stumble because you're walking. You're walking. The psalmist says, blessed are those who, who repent in their stumble. Or sorry, he says, the, the godly repent in their fallenness. The, the ones that, that fall, but yet they repent and they, they keep coming. They keep going. So we have to chase the lies we have to chase the lies back with the truth of the word of God while we're learning to walk. In Christ, we are more than conquerors, even when you're suffering. Even when you're suffering. Point number two, it's his strength. Look at verse 28 and 29. Everything that is important in this life, everything that matters, hangs on the character of who God is. If it, it, it's all based on him. Even those that reject him, it's still based on who God is. And so in this irrational fear, verse 28, he brings truth to them. He doesn't bring them a blanket and huddle, hug them and cuddle them. He brings truth from the word of God, and he starts to give them character and attributes of God. The first one, he says, the Lord is the everlasting God. He takes their focus off their fear, and he puts it on God. He doesn't take their focus and put it on them. When you're consumed with fear and anxiety and worry, stop looking at you. Look beyond you 
to the one that's eternal. Focus on him and him alone. And he says he's the everlasting God. We would say God is eternal. That we live, you and I, in this right now we call time. God does not. God's outside of time. means he's present in the past when creation began, and he's, pe- he's present right now when creation is destroyed. He's not confined to the prison of time that you and I are in, so we panic in time. And he's not panicking because he's the everlasting God. All of life has hurts. It all has fears, and we give in to sin way too quickly. But he's everlasting. God doesn't even own a watch. Not a smart watch or a dumb watch. He doesn't even have one. There's not, wa- there's not a clock on his wall. Nothing, nothing puts him in a prison. And yet we are slaves to time. And yet we miss out on all that he has. So God's not nervous. Things aren't working out the way that you want. You've been in exile for decades. He's not nervous. He's not in panic mode. So why are you? Man, I, I sure like having control of things. I sure like being the driver and not the passenger 90% of the time. Why do I consume, why am I so consumed with worry when he's the everlasting God? The second attribute we see in verse 28 is not only is he everlasting, but he's the creator of the ends of the earth. He creates all things. There's not a single square inch of creation that's outside his knowledge. This is why the psalmist says in Psalm 139, verse 11 through 13, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be, or the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. For the darkness is as light with you, for you formed my inward parts, and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. The moment of conception, God was there. That moment, that instant, you had value and you had life, and you were important to God because he was there. And that's why we hold on to the sanctity of life. The moment you were born, God was there. So it really doesn't matter. If, if it's the most glorious moment in your life, and I'm telling you, I've had a lot. I've had some serious mountain-high experiences in my life. I remember, I can, I can tell you, the moment I met my wife, I was 14 years old, not a Christian. We were buying a, a piece of land. We were moving from Owasa. We were moving south of Tulsa. And we went there early. And I was with the guy that we were buying the house from. He was my age. And we were sitting there. And we, I went to church with him. And this angel turned around and introduced myself, herself to me. That moment was overwhelming. Years later, when that same angel walked into the sanctuary of our wedding day, that was overwhelming. My children being born was an overwhelming thought. I remember that first child, and I remember we were walking out of the hospital, and I said, these people are idiots to let us take this child. They should be arrested, not us. God was there. I've had some really dark ones, too. I remember the day that I went outside, and I screamed, and I cussed, and I told God I hated his guts, and I wanted nothing to do with him for the rest of my life. And God was there. So it doesn't matter if it's your glorious vacation or if you're in the ICU room, God is there. Because he's the creator of all. 
You're never abandoned. So those feelings are lies from Satan. They're not true. So chase them away with the truth. The third attribute that he says, he tells the nation of Israel, the character of God, that God does not faint or grow weary. He's always at work. That means it's a hard concept for us to grasp because we get tired. We'll spend over a third of our life asleep in a bed. Some of us, another quarter in a recliner. But there's a lot of life that's sleeping, that's, that's resting, that's recovering for what we have next. And God never gets tired. At any one thing that you do in your life, God is doing millions of things around you that you're unaware of. And he's never tired of them. I know there's people in your life that, that you love and you can handle, and you can only handle about this much of their time. And you get weary of them. You love them. It's usually that crazy uncle. You're like, you love him, but he can only come on Christmas, maybe Thanksgiving, every other year. And you think about God the same way, just in reverse. You think, God has to be tired of me. All I do is stumble and fall. All I do is mess up. And this truth about who God is and his character and his attribute is he doesn't grow weary of you. He loves you. And I can get it. I've been with you for a few months, and I see you worship, and I see you praising the Lord, and I love you. I'm grateful for you. But I don't like me that much. And I know God has to be tired of me sometimes. Because that's the lie Satan tells all of us, isn't it? I would do anything for you, but I know the mind that I have and how dark it is. And I wouldn't sacrifice myself for me, but God doesn't grow tired of me because he loves me and he cares for me. So stop believing lies. The fourth attribute just in this one verse is his understanding is unsearchable. Meaning God has wisdom, wisdom beyond everything that you can even fathom. In every situation in life, we try to figure it out, don't we? We're human. We want to see how it works, how it puts together. What's the point? What's the purpose? Why did this happen? Why are we suffering? Why does this heartache hurt so bad? We try to figure everything out, and we can't find an answer. Life is baffling to us, but it's not baffling to God in any shape, form, or fashion. We're, he's, over, he's overwhelmingly wise. I think about doctors and surgeons. They just intrigue me. And I think about... Uh, a team of surgeons can operate on a woman who is pregnant and perform a heart surgery on the baby inside of her womb and both survive. I mean, just sit and think about that for 30 seconds. That's an overwhelming thought. We are, as humans, are really creative. We are really intelligent. Humans, we can, not me, but other humans that are doctors and surgeons can take a body and dissect it completely apart they can look at the brain and see the nervous system and how this affects and how how something you eat can get into the brain and and impact it how your heart works and and how it has all these safety mechanisms and how it is supposed to keep you alive none of it makes sense to me i'm so glad god didn't call me to be your doctor and you should say amen but you know what humans can't do they can't take that body and Put it back together and breathe life into it. And God can just grab some dirt and put his breath on it. And we have humanity. His wisdom is unsearchable. So listen, God engages our whole body to love the Lord as God with you, all your heart, your mind, and your soul. 
but you'll never figure him out, so you can't find him by your brain. You have to submit to him by faith. And then he opens it all to you. And this is where these people in Israel are, are, are wrestling with. They're wondering, is God there? Does he really care? We have to submit by our faith because God is everlasting. He is creator. He doesn't grow weary and he is wise. So what does that do for us? Look what it says in verse 29. And he gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. He increases his strength. God, God gives that to those who look beyond their weak, frail situation. He gives strength to those who are in exile, who are in Babylon, who are in prison, who are in sin, who are in death, and he gives his strength to them. How? We find that in verse 30 and 31. This is our third point. It's his salvation. You read in Revelation, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not yours. It's his and his salvation that he gives to us. And he's telling them, this, this nation of Israel, they're in exile. They haven't heard from God. They're wanting an, an army to come wipe these people out. They're wanting a human victory to regain all their wealth and strength so their future would look good. So they didn't have to worry or care. And they wanted things to be comfortable. And here's the point that God says in verse, in verse 30. Even youth shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. Isaiah's point is, listen, you can get the most athletic, strong human on the planet. You can get the world record marathon runner. And he's eventually going to get tired. You can get the strongest man that's ever walked on this earth. He's still going to die. You understand, 10 out of 10 people die. None of us are getting out of here alive. It's 100% certainty. We're all going to die. So guess what? When we take an honest look at this world and this life, despair sure does seem like the positive outlook. It's all we got. And I know you're thinking, thanks, Pastor Encouraging. Way to go. You have an email already formed in your head to Pastor Chris. Don't let Smokey preach again. He's a downer. But that's the truth. When we look at this life, it is just suffering and death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ didn't rise from the grave, then go get drunk, go get party, go do whatever, and then die. Because that's as good as it's going to be. Just, just end it quickly. But verse 31 is the key to this passage. He says, but those who wait on the Lord. I'm so glad the word wait is used. Because waiting on God is the most important thing. That's why you are created, is to wait on God. How many times do you see throughout all of Scripture, be still, wait, pause, and know that I am God. You're not. I am God. He tells them, these, these people that are in prison, you're going to soar like eagles. He told them that, and he showed them that all the way back in Exodus 19.4. Exodus 19 says this, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. They're, they're in prison. He says, you're going to fly. They are completely worn out. And Isaiah says, you're going to run and not get tired. He says, 
you're, you're going to keep doing this. They had quit. They were done, just like the disciples. He says, you're going to walk and never stop. You're never going to grow faint. And that key word is waiting on the Lord. Waiting isn't doing nothing. Actually, waiting is probably the most active Christian thing you could ever do. Because in waiting, you are searching the Word of God, His revealed truth to you. Not something outside, but inside the truth of the Word of God. You are searching, you are praying, you are meditating, you are studying, you are memorizing, you are obeying what you know. And in that obedience, He's revealing what He wants you to do. It's never let go and let God. That's not the mentality. It's letting go of my desires and trusting in God, wrestling with God, striving with eager expectancy that he's going to do something because he's good and I know his attributes. He's everlasting. He's creator. He's eternal. He's always with me. He's all wise. This is why faith in Hebrews 11 is the assurance of things hoped for, waited for. It's the conviction of things not seen. Verse 6, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. With God holding my hand the entire time, I'll never fully learn how to walk. So without faith and Him letting go and let me stumble, I can't please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists, and He rewards those that seek Him. Isaiah is saying, those who wait on the Lord experience salvation salvation is the hope that we have for eternity and it's what will we do in that moment so here's the whole main idea of the sermon point number one was our suffering plus his strength equals his salvation you can't get rid of suffering you can't you can't avoid it but how do you handle it in the moment is you trust in his strength, and in his strength we have salvation that will give us hope for eternity. And we all have gone searching for hope. We've all gone looking for something beyond despair to grab a hold of. Whether that was better grades, whether it was more athletic achievement or musical achievement, whether that was a better college or a better job or this relationship, some have gone into addictions and drugs and alcohol, some have gone into pornography, anything to elevate me from this despair that I have right now. And what do we find at the end of it? We thought it was going to remove us from our concentration camp of barbed wire. We thought we were going to get out of that. And as soon as we escape that one strand of wire, we look and we go, oh no, there's another one. And we look again and there's millions of strands surrounding us in this world. But here's the hope. You're not left to your human potential. You're not left to your hope of strength and willpower. The hope that we have, the one that we wait for, elevates us far above this world and gives us eternity for our home. It's the one that we trust in everything that we give our life to. When we're consumed with fear, we can't find a quick fix. We find the eternal one. Christianity, Christianity is a transformational faith. But when it's just that next thing, that next thing, that's why our, our adolescents in this country, they take an honest look, and they get it, despair. And that's why the gospel message is such an important one. It's not a quick fix. 
It's not a quick fix that you just get Jesus and go do the life that you want to do. It's not a quick fix that you make a deal with God and you give your life to him, but you give your heart to the world. It's not a quick fix that you're just going to go do what you want and how you want and when you want. Christianity transforms us. We were in prison and he made us free. We were dead and he made us alive. It is a surrendering of my entire life to follow after the eternal one. Because I know what my future is. It's Jesus. Listen, I'm in, I'm in a place, I've, I've been without a job for just shy of a year. And God has provided everything and then some because of faith. I don't know where I'm going to be living next month. But my, my, my hope is not that future. My hope is that Jesus Christ is here right now with me and he's already there wherever I'll be. I'm going to trust in the eternal one and him alone. So who gets, who gets that renewed strength? Those that pray, just like the psalmist in Psalm 73, verse 25 and 26. Whom have I have in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Pray with me. Father, I pray that this morning we would learn how to pray just like the psalmist. We would pray those actual words to you. Whom do I have in heaven but you? I have nothing in this future to look forward to besides you and you alone. There's nothing on this earth that I desire besides you. And Father, there are days that I desire a lot of things on this planet. So Father, please help me. Focus on you and you alone, even here in the suffering, in the exile. And let me see the truth and stop believing the lies of who Satan is and what he is and what he's telling me. Father, help us to see that you are salvation. You are the hope. And that even in the suffering, we will wait upon the Lord. We will not fret or fear, but we will trust in you. That you would truly be the strength of our heart and the portion forevermore. Father, I know there's many Christians in this room right now that live with the same struggle that I live with because we're all in this boat together. What's next? Let us focus our gaze upon you and look to the one who holds everything and just submit to you and allow your character, your attributes, and your word to elevate us far above fear and worry and anxiety. And Father, I know there are those that have joined with us this morning and we are so grateful for the bravery to step into an unknown of what it is to hear the message of hope and yet still not have it. So those that do not know you as Lord and Savior, God, we pray that you would draw their hearts to you. That they would have the eternal one that holds the future forever. They would surrender. Not looking for a quick fix, but looking for an eternal one of transformation from now until we rise in glory with you. Father, we pray that you would be glorified in this moment of just being open 
to being led by you. It's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Smokey, thank you so much for that incredible reminder about what it means to wait. You know, what we call waiting, God calls his perfect timing. And I, I can't help but believe that there are some people who are in this room right now. You're just waiting on God. What a great place to be. What a great and uncomfortable place to be. And so as this service comes to an end, let's take some time to respond to what we've heard today. There are members of our congregation that are part of our prayer team. I'm going to ask them to go to where they go in, in, our, in our room right now. And sometimes it's hard to wait. And we simply need to look at God and say, God, I don't understand it and I don't like it, but I totally trust you. And sometimes you just need to pray with someone about that. So these men and women in the front of the room, in the back of the room, they're here to pray with you. And this altar is open for you to come and just say, God, I, I don't always understand it, but I do trust you. And to just take a moment to respond to who God is. Josh is going to sing. And as he sings, some of us need to pray where we are. Some of us need to pray with people. And some of us just need to sit and listen and let him sing over you this truth that as we turn our eyes on Jesus, something remarkable happens. And then maybe today you came into this church not really understanding why you're here because you're not sure about this whole faith thing and Jesus thing. Well, we'd love to talk to you more about that. Maybe during this service you felt God drawing you to you and you have some questions about that. We would love the privilege of being able to, to share with you the gospel of who Jesus is. We'd love to help you place your faith in Christ and to trust in him. So as Josh sings, let's all of us take a moment to just wait and trust God's perfect timing in our lives.